This is Vintage Broadcasting. The following is a study through the book of Philippians. My name is Frank Goss. I hope this study proves beneficial to you in the days to come. I thank you very much. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you to will to do according to his good pleasure. Now you'll find this in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. As we continue in our study on Philippians, we're going to be looking at these two verses. In the early days of Christianity, an idea that had a detrimental effect among the Christians had crept in. The idea was that we need to isolate ourselves completely from the world and associate only with Christians. Now this idea still hangs around in the mind of many today. You isolate yourself and keep yourself clean. One monk in Syria decided to do this, and he was quite serious. So he climbed up a 50-foot-high tower and isolated himself from the world. Another guy lived way off in the desert in order to avoid worldly contacts. And others believe they've been led to isolate themselves in little cloisters that they call monasteries. Now, the Bible does not support this, never has and never will. Religion may encourage it, but Scripture does not. Some will say that, well, this is just your opinion. Well, no, it's not really. The Bible and Jesus himself has told us to go into all the world and preach the gospel, not go into a high-walled little convent or monastery and hide yourself from those in need. We cannot say that spending time alone with God is not necessary. I believe it is essential and critical. You have to spend time in prayer, worship, and Bible study. But the Bible teaches us that our prayers and our worship must lead us into action, not away from it, into a sedentary existence. Truth leads us to practice. If it does not, it's nothing more than interesting information that produces fleeting desires and feelings. Paul tells us about Jesus' glories, his death, and his reign over all creation. And this information is given to the Philippians so that they'll have an example of obedience and humility in living the Christian life. They have somebody to follow by example. We've been provided with written guidelines here, and they're put to us in very practical ways. I have been deeply impressed with the thought of Paul writing to his closest friends, speaking freely, not harshly, but with a proper attitude of wanting to help them. He says, look, look, in, in light of these things that I've told you, we can appreciate that Jesus has become like us. The name of Christ is so precious, and knowing that you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but when I'm gone, you keep on in the faith. Keep adding these attributes that I'm telling you about to your salvation. Do it with fear and trembling, knowing that it's God who is working in you, to do these things. God empowers you to will and to act according to his good purpose. God does a work of salvation and sanctification. I believe that's very, very clear throughout scripture. Paul told the Philippians earlier that he is the beginner and perfecter of our salvation. God began a work in you, verse 9 of chapter 1, and he will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now this is true, but there's a cooperation involved. And there are things that you are required to do. This does not add to your salvation. 
your salvation is already complete and done. It's finished. It does help build you up in both confidence and assurance, which adds to your sanctification. It gives you the, the knowledge that God will do, and he is capable of doing all that is necessary. So it gives us confidence. To be sure, we should recognize that joyful anticipation should be in the heart and the mind of every Christian. He wants to know. He wants to obey. He wants to grow. That is the Christian. If these things are in you, then you'll abound and be fruitful. God puts these things in you, and you nurture them. You stir them up. This is part of the benefit of the assembly of the saints, the church. We help stir each other up towards godliness. We come together, we meet, we pray corporately. We study corporately. We ask questions and answer questions among ourselves. You follow and you obey. And then you know Jesus Christ in practical ways. And that, my friend, is the aim of all Christians. These lofty principles, they're fantastic. But what good are they to me or to you if we don't practice them? Jesus asked the question, why do you call me Lord and don't do what I say do? Paul uses the word therefore twice in this passage. Now, I learned as a young student that whenever you say the word therefore, you have to ask, what is the therefore, therefore? By using this, he is pointing back to what he has been saying. Therefore means because of this. And here he points to Christ's conduct. He humbled himself and he became obedient, not a simple careless agreement, but he actually followed his obedience into submission even unto death. That's obeying. Sometimes we agree to certain things without realizing the depth of the contract that we've signed. It all sounded so good and the salesman was tremendous in his presentation and it was very noble. The prayers of the people are sweet and sincere. But when you begin to study and you begin to see and understand what's been done, you're given Christ's example of obedience. Then the question arises, will you obey in like manner? Well, that's when people start backing up and they say, well, I didn't, I didn't really realize. I, I, I doubt that I will be ever called upon to exercise such things. Well, Thursday night witnessing, do you realize I work all day? I mean, I, I do. I spend all day at work. And I've got so much on my plate right now. Hold on now. You're going really too far. You want me, me, to stand on a street corner and to do what? To, to preach and hand out tracts? Huh. Pray the entire service in prayer? A whole hour? You call me when you think you're going to be doing something worthwhile, okay? You know? This is practical Christianity. And that's what Paul is talking to us about. And the question comes around, will you obey? you got to work these things out, and I understand that. Well, okay, so there's something you need to do to supplement your salvation then, right? Is that what, is that what this means? No. Um, if this is your thinking, then you're in for a big, big disappointment. Uh, God's standard of righteousness is 100%. And uh, how much can you add to your salvation to bring it up to 100%? Or was it complete when you got saved? You're not going to meet God's standard in and of yourself. It's simply not going to happen. Then will God settle for 45% knowing that you're trying? No. 
what Paul is saying here is that because you are saved, not, okay, now here's your part to play in earning your salvation. He's not saying that at all. He's writing to some seasoned saints who've walked with the Lord for quite a while, and they've already entered into the family of God. And he's saying, look, here's the next step in growth in your spiritual life. He is not saying, okay, here is the next step in securing your salvation. No, he's saying now, because you have the Holy Spirit within you, you have the power to drop old habits and add new habits. It is Christ in you that enables these things to happen, not you trying to produce good fruit. It's a call to faith. It's a call to faith in action, and it's a call to obedience. For example, the Lord says, add to your faith virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, and godliness. Okay, you've partaken of, a, of the divine nature now. You now mutually share in the divine nature. This indicates a participation in the divine nature. Now, I will tell you this, as a young Christian, I struggled with a constant failure to be holy, and I was afraid, to be honest. I was told to be holy, and I heard the preachers preach on this, so I tried my best to be holy. But I was a wicked sinner, and I really couldn't control my thoughts. I still had the same problems that I had earlier. I tried, I agonized at my efforts, and I desired to please the Lord very, very much. So I wrote out a little page of do's and don'ts that I would follow throughout the day. And if I could manage to complete these things, then I would take another step towards holiness. So I tried. And I found out that I didn't have the power within me, not even for a day. The good that I wanted to do, I couldn't do. Sin dwelled in me. And I was mortified by that. Couldn't understand why sin still dwelled in me. And I wanted to be rid of it so bad. Then I read Romans 7, 14 through 25, and I found there the answer. It's the constant battle between the inner man and the outer man. Inside, I rejoice in all that Christ has done, and I'm so glad. But outside, in my flesh, I see that I am constantly fighting sin. The flesh is always, constantly at war with my spiritual desires. It's not an issue of hypocrisy so much, though that's how I saw it early on. I was nothing more than a rank hypocrite. And I don't like hypocrisy. I despise it. But I saw in my flesh the sin that was constant. But then I began to learn that I have to agree with the law of God that I am fallen. I'm depraved, I'm filled with craven desires, and given the opportunity, I will sin in the most profane ways possible. I am and always will be a wretched man. I saw that I cannot trust, despite what the world has to say, I can't trust myself. I'm wicked and I'm untrustworthy. My relief came in understanding that it was not within me to do these things in order to be holy. It was the power of God in me, his nature abiding in me that would enable me. This does not mean that I can make a laissez-faire attitude of sin. My sin is my sin and my responsibility. So how was I to stop sinning? 
Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus, my Lord. I do have to obey, but not in order to keep my part in the play. I must trust Christ to provide the ability for me to obey. When I came to Christ, I was born into the family of God. And in that new birth, I was given a new nature. Old things passed away and all things became new. Peter brings this out when he says in 2 Peter chapter 1 that we are partakers of the divine nature. It's not me trying to please God and adding things to my character or my knowledge base that will enable me to perfect my performance. It's Christ in me allowing me to add to my faith maturity and grace and stability and faith. A tremendous example is found in Matthew 14, 22 through 27. It's just a very short passage, but it reveals so much truth, huh? A storm was blowing in, and the disciples were in a boat fighting to cross over the Sea of Galilee in order to meet Jesus on the other side. Well, the winds were blowing hard and strong, and it was dark, and the waves were getting high. But then suddenly, they spotted Jesus walking across the water, and they were terrified. They saw a ghost, and they cried out in fear, these hardened fishermen, tough guys. They cried out in fear, and Jesus said, take courage, take courage, it's me, don't be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. Peter stepped out of the boat, and he walked on the water, and he moved towards Jesus, and everything was fine. It was unbelievable. It was Christ who called him and enabled Peter to do this. And Peter was walking along and he was looking straight at Jesus. But then the wind whipped up and it hit Peter in the face and a wave struck him. And Peter saw and felt these things. And then he realized, I can't walk on this water. I can't do this. Nobody could walk on water. And suddenly he sank like a rock and he cried out to Jesus, Lord, save me. And again, he was looking to the Lord. Jesus reached out his hand, and he took hold of Peter, and they returned to the boat. But seeing the wind, Peter became frightened, and when he began to sink, he cried out. Now, when you consider yourself and your abilities, apart from who saved you and who abides within you, you'll faint in your faith because you don't see the ability within you. Well, it's not your ability that impresses the Lord. And it's not your ability that's going to affect the change. It's Christ in you. What it is, is you're trusting your ability to appease God and to perform well for him. You're trusting yourself. That's where you're looking for the energy, but it's not there. That's what you did before you came to Christ. The life Christ has called us to is not a performance. It's not self-reliance. It's a person. And it's knowing that person. And you come to trust him and to rely upon his ability. Trust his exceedingly great and precious promises. You obey what he says to do and, and you'll be surprised. We can't follow apart from Christ within us. We can't. Growth in faith is understanding and believing what Christ has said is true. Now, I can do nothing on my own. Nothing. You have to rely on Christ in you. And if I'm going to be at peace and walk with the Lord, I have to rely on Christ in me. Paul told the Galatians, 
the life that I now live, all these hardships and struggles, the stonings and lashings, imprisonment, mocking, sickness, hunger, all of these things, I can live because of Christ in me. He's my hope of glory, not me. The fantastic news is that we are partakers of this divine nature, and he can live this life through us. So we're adding these practices to our life now. We're praying, we're reading the Bible, we're fellowshipping with other saints, we're coming to church, we're singing and we're praising God, and we're working to become what God desires. But we have to be very careful to remember that it is Christ in us doing this work within us and through us. Paul's quick to remind the Philippians that it's God who is doing the work within. And how does God do this work? Well, first, he begins to make you willing. There must be an engaged will first if there's going to be action. A man stands on the scale early in the morning, and he looks down, and he sees that he's put on a considerable amount of weight. Well, at first he thinks the scales are broken, so he moves them across the floor to another location, and he stands on them again, and he's going, wow, huh. Something has to be done. His emotions are stirred, and he begins to consider going to the gym after work, a diet, jogging, everything that would be required to lose weight. During the day, though, he forgets about all this, and he gets caught up in work. He has a lot to do. The next morning, he avoids the scales altogether. Emotionally, everything's okay. It's past. But then he goes to the doctor. He hears what the doctor has to say. The problem was that the smell of bacon and coffee and toast and eggs just appealed to him every morning. But now the doctor is telling him, you got to lose weight, buddy. This goes beyond his emotional desires. Now it's a fact. And his will is being challenged. What will he do that is necessary to do? The doctor has had a profound impact on the man, causing the man's will to be engaged. Now he has to make a solid decision here. And this is how God works within us, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. He convinces us of what is needed. For some, it takes a little effort to convince. For others, it's like the battle at Jabok. The point is this, though. It's God who engages the will of the man. And this is what is meant by, in the day of your power, we're willing, or we'll join together. Psalm 110, verse 3. Now, this may bring up a logical question, and it has in the past. Are you telling me that I cannot do anything that I want to do, that I don't have a free will? Well, that's not at all what I'm saying. What I am saying is this. Intellectually, you cannot decide to increase your IQ by 50 points. You cannot do that. Physically, a double amputee cannot decide that he will learn how to dunk the basketball. It just won't happen. He can't decide that I'm going to learn how to run faster than Noah Lyles, the fastest man on earth. You can cosmetically change whatever you like, but you won't be taller, you won't be faster, or biologically, you won't be different from the way that God made you. 
There's some things that you cannot do. You can't will yourself to do. Now, you may think, well, I can make decisions. Well, that's true. Bruce Jenner made a decision to change his name and inject himself with estrogen and call himself a woman. But the cosmetic alterations do not modify or change the fact that Bruce Jenner is a man. Well, are you saying that I just don't have a free will? Is that what you're saying? Not at all. You're not going to corner me into that. What I am saying is this. All men and women have a free will to do whatever they wish to do that is within their nature. Your only constraint is your nature. What I'm saying is that your will is bound and is inextricably tied to your nature. And you are limited physically, mentally, and emotionally, intellectually, and spiritually by the dictates of your nature. Now, we go back to Second Peter. Christians are different from non-Christians. We're a new race of people created in Christ Jesus. We have a new nature that has been placed within us by God, and we are partners in God's divine nature. This is not figurative language here, but what actually has taken place. Now God can communicate with us. He can speak to us and show us and guide us and lead us. Now we can add these traits that Paul mentions in this passage. And because of this, we can know the truth and apply it daily. We can participate in his training because he's guiding us now. You can know personally his peace, his holiness, goodness, gentleness, and justice. And by his work within us, you can add all these things to your character. Now, so many have experienced a great deal of failure in this area. And a lot of books have been printed uh, concerning this. You know, how to find the best you now and how to do these things. And a lot of people feel that the Christian life just doesn't work for them. But it does work. When I listen and hear their struggles, it's plain to see that they're falling back into old habits of thinking. And that habit is, if it's going to be, it's up to me. I'm the captain of my destiny. I have made certain things happen. This means that people are prone to fall back into the old ways that they knew before. I have to do this. I have to do that. If, if I'm going to be rewarded, I've got to do something to earn it, to deserve it. Really? Paul saw this in the Galatians. And he said, oh, foolish Galatians, is that how you came to know the Lord? Did you come by obeying the law and perfecting yourself? Or did you come by faith in Jesus? Haven't you understood these things yet? One of the problems that we have in America is a very weak and emaciated church. Poor teaching is rampant. Preachers do not want to offend people, so they avoid weighty subjects that require study and deep thought. When the people do hear these weighty subjects, they react out of ignorance. They say, that, that's not what I've heard before. So what people tend to do from the pulpit is they teach you how to manage your money or how to find the perfect you or how to find yourself in a changing world. Social issues crowd the pulpit today, not spiritual matters that will govern your life. So many pastors do not understand these deeper doctrines themselves. They don't. 
How can they teach their congregation then the deeper things of God? Mark this down next time you go to church. How much time is spent in prayer corporately? How much teaching have you received on how to pray? Or how much have you received by way of teaching on election or sovereignty or worship? Then compare with what you're being taught with how you live your life daily. The people within the church will never rise higher than a pulpit. Good sheep can be starved, and good sheep are prone to many, many illnesses. Bad teaching prevails in our day, and we do have emaciated flocks begging to be fed. My exhortation to any who are listening to this, read your Bible. Study your Bible. Dig deep and find out what God wants you to know. Listen to godly teachers. Stay away from false teachers. Learn to believe God. Find like-minded men and women who love God. Learn God's truth and walk with him. Pray daily that Paul is teaching to the Philippians are essential principles to walking practically with the Lord every day. And you can add these things to your life as you learn to trust God who works in you both to will and to do these things. Note the progression that Paul lays out. God works in your will. God works in us first to will, and then he gives us the ability to act. So we want to obey him. The willing always comes before doing. God moves to convince you of what you should do. You see what you should do, and you pray, and you ask God to direct and then you trust. These are practical principles that you should know, that you should learn, and that you should do. And if you do these things, you will see that you will not lack in spiritual fruit at all. You will grow in your grace and knowledge of the Lord, and the Lord will open your eyes to see even more and to understand more.